When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I was thinking that maybe that's where your liberation and your freedom comes from, is that you're free to operate outside of the tropes. Mm. And that may allow you to move with greater dispatch. It may allow you to act with a lot more freedom and a lot more daring, because you're not tied to the idea that the Supreme Court is there to protect you, or that these institutions have any interest in holding themselves accountable. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we are speaking to the author of the new book, Ricky, the life and legend of an American original about the one and only Ricky Henderson, as well as an article that people have been remarking upon in great detail called Baseball, Barbecue, and Losing Freedom this 4th of July. I'm talking about a great friend of the show, Howard Bryant. Also, I've got some choice words about the latest with Brittany Griner. Uh, It's brutal. Uh, Also, just stand up and just sit down awards and more. But first, let's talk to Mr. Sui Generous himself, Howard Bryant. First question I wanted to ask you is, you know, Howard Bryant, how are you feeling about America these days? No, that's a that's a broad question. Yes. (laughs) But it's actually it's a really simple one. Um, I feel. You know, I feel the way I feel about this place right now is not that dissimilar to how I've always felt about it. I feel like for my entire lifetime, you know, a half century, more than a half century now, that this country has been moving further and further and further away from the values that I believe my values to be. And it's always been that way. And I think that it's it's being codified now in ways that I think that people didn't, even if they anticipated it, they didn't believe it until it happened, obviously talking about the Supreme Court doing what it's doing. You know, Dave, where I really saw it was when I was working on my second to last book on full dissidence. Mm-hmm. And you and I talked about this, the the dissolution of the public state, that if you go back and look in, in, into the, the 19, early 1970s, late 1960s, the public wealth in the United States was significant. And today we are a private, we're a private state. And that is the reason why you see so many different elements of our society that don't have proper funding. And yet there's money for the military. There's money for private wealth. There's money for, there's there's money for so many other things, but there's no money for schools and there's no money for, for the things that create a community and create a society. And so for us to be where we are right now is disturbing, but it's not surprising. This has been an orchestrated half-century assault on the you know, on not just the individual freedoms that people have, but certainly on the idea of the public community. Mm. And I, I agree with both things that you just said, both that this is decades in the making, and that you know the Supreme Court just grabbed the steering wheel and did a sharp 
right off a cliff in codifying a lot of this, you know, 50 year wish list that's been well, put forward. Exactly. Well, well, what happens when you stop fighting? You lose. Mm -hmm. And and I think that in in so many different in so many different measures people believe so much more deeply in their institutions without a whole lot of cause. And I, and I lend a lot of that to just pure whiteness. I, I think that when I think about a lot of these institutions, you only have to go to what the civil, the Voting Rights Act of 64, um, uh, Civil Rights 65, 68, you know, when you start, I think by 68 was really the only time that people were just legally, we're not even talking about extra legal, but just talking about legally being covered under the same laws, that little period of time. So for the overwhelming majority of this country's history, the Supreme Court did not protect you. Mm -hmm. And now we're back to the Supreme Court not protecting you. Mm -hmm. And for most of this country's history, the Supreme Court was the most reactionary institution. Uh, of the branches of government. And it's just like you have this boomer generation that raised us on the idea of the war in court and this idea of there's a logic to progress that the court would present and protect. That's right. And that when you begin to think about it, the war in court was the anomaly. Yes. And we, what we do, we spend so much time patting ourselves on the back for the big victories. You pat yourself on the back for Roe. You pat yourself on the back for Brown. You pat yourself on the back for the Obama election. And yet each one of these things, the reaction was so much greater than the victory. The reaction was so much, so much more severe because of the victory. And you look at schools that are in some ways in worse shape. You look at the, the, the baselines of what you thought this country was in terms of the separation of church and state. And now you're giving, you're giving public money to the church um, and the prayer, all of these things. And I, and I think what's interesting about it is that, the, that, that you asked me how I felt about this. And I think that what it is, is that everybody protects their own time. You, you know, we all come through this life during a certain period. And, and during our period, for me, born in 1968, these things were codified. These things, that whether it was Miranda, whether it was Roe, whether it was separation of church, and all these things, were the, they were the pillars of what you thought the culture was. But if you were born 50 years before that, they weren't. So you're right. The big shock to all of this is that is, is that the idea that rights as time goes forward will continue to expand. And when they don't, when they go backwards, that's where the shock comes in. Mm. You know, one of the features historically um, in ages of reaction um, is what a lot of people have sort of turned on to this year. You've, I'm sure you've heard this, people talking about 2022 as the year of sports washing, you know, of these authoritarian regimes using sporting events as a cover, as a way to both assuage the local populace and project a lie abroad. Of course, you know, we, you and I can talk about this going back to the 36 Olympics in Berlin, for goodness sakes, like sports washing is not new. No, and not only is it not new, Dave, but you could make an argument that the United States 
had mastered it. Yes. Because the United States talked about Jackie Robinson during a time of Jim Crow. They talked about Joe Lewis during a time of Jim Crow. They talked about, you know, the all of these different um, successes on the on the on the football field or on the sporting diamonds, while the country was not living up to whatever those ideals were. That was one of the one of the reasons why the 36 Olympics was so powerful. And it was one of the great counters that Nazi Germany had for the United States. Look at your own country. Who are you to tell mm-hmm. us your folks aren't free either? And they are your people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh you know it's showing up to today like the prep for the LA Olympics and right mm-hmm. now for 2028. It's all sports washing. Um, I wanted to ask you, like, in an age of reaction like this, do you think the athlete has a responsibility to say anything about this, to do anything about this? Does the athlete have any responsibility in an age of reaction? Should we be looking to athletes to stand up during an age of reaction? Well, I think we look, we should look toward everybody. And that's what sort of this revival of citizenship has been which is over these 10 years when suddenly you hear the athletes talking, my attitude had always been, well, they're all citizens. So you do need to hear them talk. They have a stake in this society, whether we treat them as though they're too rich to care or whatever. And so, yeah, the, the issue, the big problem that I have with all of this is the idea that these athletes continue to be important in the first place that you would have liked to think that 75 years after Jackie Robinson and 60 years after Muhammad Ali were still looking, that we shouldn't still be looking to these athletes, that this was supposed to be, that they were supposed to open the door to these predominantly white educational institutions and that we would do the rest. Mm-hmm. That once you had this level of integration, that the black doctors and the white lawyers and the you know, the, the female scientists, that everybody was going to come together and, and we would be doing our part. But because of the class elements and because of our, our just lust for, for money, the way that we treat celebrity in this country, we're always looking toward the athlete. And to me, what I always look to is that, okay, they've got the visibility, they've got the resources, um, they, they've, they've got the, the position but why am I listening to them? You know, this is not supposed to be, to me, it wasn't supposed to be in perpetuity that you were going to be listening, taking your cues from athletes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, I, I wanted to ask you uh, also about a way forward or a way out. I actually just had breakfast this morning with a friend who read Full Dissidents uh, on, a pl- on a couple of plane rides. He's traveling around and he loved it. And he said it left him feeling despondent. <laughs> and he, he said, no, love the writing, love the arguments. I was waiting for a chapter with a bit of a roadmap to get out of this. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and that was a strategic question. As you're working on books, as you well know, you, you do map out, okay, what do I want to say? And, and how do I want to end this? And, and do I need to provide the path forward? And there was a part of me that felt like that was really important just for the arc of the story and for the sake of the reader. But then there was another part of me that was like, 
I don't have the answers. I don't know what to tell you because I don't even know what I'm telling myself. And would it, is, it, is it authentic of me to map out some 10-point program that's going to get us free when the name of the book is Full Dissidence? And the last sentence is that your freedom is, is rooted in knowing that you don't have to listen to these people anymore. To, to me, the, the roadmap, the, the optimism that I felt in the book was not feeling trapped anymore, was not having to live in, within these tropes, not looking at the Supreme Court and expecting it to save us, not looking at some of these institutions and wondering why the, the only things that get deregulated in this country, I'm sorry, the only things that get regulated in this country are salary caps and abortion. Everything is supposed to be deregulated. And I was thinking that maybe that's where your liberation and your freedom comes from, is that you're free to operate outside of the tropes. Mm. And that allow you to move with greater dispatch. It may allow you to, to act with a lot more freedom and a lot more daring because you're not tied to the idea that the Supreme Court is there to protect you or that these institutions have any, in, any interest in holding themselves accountable. Mm. Wow, uh, this has been very clarifying, Howard. I could talk to you about this all day and then some, but I'd really be remiss if we didn't speak about Ricky, the life and legend of an American original. I want to give Ricky the time because I love the book, not because out of any sort of need to help you move merchandise, but because <laughs> I think this book is, is special. It's a gift. I'm really glad you wrote it. I, I, I wanted to ask you, when in your professional life, because you have some professional roots in the Bay Area, when in your professional life did you look at Ricky Henderson for the first time and say, now that's a character. That guy could be a book. Or even that guy is a feature. That guy is more than just an athlete. Yeah, that's a great question because it really wasn't until late. It really was probably 2015, 2016, 2017 when I was feeling, I don't want to say despondent, the word you just use, or, uh, or depressed or burned out or anything, but it was very, very clear as the, that this past decade has been devastating and that people don't realize they don't pay nearly enough attention to the fact that the subjects that we write about, that they're not just topics, that we live these topics. And the reason why we write about them is because we live them, not because they are detached political theories. And I was really having difficulty hearing myself. I was wondering, do I have anything else to add? Do I have anything else to say? What else am I, how many more times can I write about this subject of protest and kneeling and unaccountability and paid patriotism and nothing's moving? I don't feel like, I don't feel like I'm growing. Maybe I was, and I still, I feel like I, in retrospect, I feel clearly like I, I have grown, but at the time, I, I told myself, I need to get back. I need to, to go back and write something fun. Just I need a palate cleanse. And it was the late, great Pedro Gomez, my good friend, whom I dedicated the book to. We were in Arizona one day, and we were just ticking off a list of how many athletes these days actually are important enough and have enough scope to carry a full biography. Not just numbers, but who actually have something to say about the culture. 
And the list is way shorter than you think. And I don't like to pick on him. I kind of do. But, I mean, Albert Pujols is a great player. I find him completely and totally uninteresting. And uh, Mike Trout's almost in the context to make Pujols all the more interesting. That's right. And I'm looking at you. I feel nothing for you beyond your numbers. But then again, this is what the sport has done. Mm -hmm. It has decided to sell people through numbers. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Do I really... Is launch angle and exit velocity going to keep my attention for 300 pages? I don't think so. Mm. So I started to think more and more about Ricky, and of course there were two connections to it. One, the the two personal connections where I started my career at the Oakland Tribune covering preps. So I covered the Oakland Athletic League. I was at McClyman's and Skyline and Oakland Tech and Free and Oakland High and Castlemont and all the schools. And that was the, you know, there was a a personal roadmap there. And the second was my first year on the beat at the San Jose Mercury News covering the Oakland A's was Ricky's fourth and final stint in Oakland. So he was my first year covering. Ricky was in the clubhouse. And so I began thinking about him more and more as a character and as somebody who could carry a full uh, a full treatment. And then there was something else, Dave, too, that you you and I have talked about that is really important, has, has always been important to me. And that is when you think about the sports century, you think about the, the to me, the three waves of the American sports century. There's the immigrant wave, there's the, or era, there's the integration era, and then there's the economic era. And Ricky is central to that. This is the third piece of it. I, I dealt with the integration era in the Henry Aaron biography. And then this one, the economics, where these athletes become super athletes and now they are millionaires and the relationship between the public and the, and the fan, and, you know, between the public and the team, the public and the player and the players and each other. All of that is shifting. I had real difficulty after I finished juicing the game back in 05. I was thinking about a story like this about let's talk about this economic era, about when I was really thinking about a, almost a companion to Lords of the Realm, which the steroid book kind of did in its own way, not intentionally. And publishers didn't want it. Publishers thought that they really believed that baseball fans didn't want something so unheroic. They thought that the baseball reader wanted a happier ending and was going to be turned off by the money, even though I'm of the mind that if there's one thing this country is fascinated and will always be fascinated by, it's money. And so I thought that combining a character like Ricky, who was so rich in the anecdotes and in the story and who he was, who also obliterated the record book, who also really did represent this money era, it checked off a lot of the boxes. It allowed me to have that palate cleanse while also paying attention to some of those values that I care about. You know, this is also something you and I have talked about off air, but do you think that Ricky Henderson, because of his utterly unabashed projection of style in such a stodgy sport, also earns him a place on that spectrum of the heritage and even can see a player like a Ricky Henderson, the way we might look at a player like an Allen Iverson, as a connective tissue between what was and what is? 100%. And, and, the, and the area where they join that heritage is not political because Ricky wasn't political. But where, where it was, was in terms of who got to tell the story, who did the talking, who did the shaping, who got to tell your story. 
and how much of your story was distorted because the people who were writing about you really didn't have a great deal of respect for you. They may have respected your gifts, but really didn't think very much of you or didn't really take the time to understand you or want to understand you. And what is your relationship with that? How much do you contribute to that and how much do you not? So absolutely, that's one of the underlying uh, foundations of the book is this relationship between between media and athlete and and who gets to tell your story. How how do you get to be portrayed to the public and who does that portraying? And, and who gets to be authentic, uh, well, which is a battle that still exists. Well, uh, that's right. Sports. The, yeah, and the number of ways that we find to look at athletes and and recast them to our to our liking and and i think that that is something that ricky really did represent where you're you're looking at a guy who really was one of the most disliked players in the game but suddenly by the end everybody wanted to tell stories about him and and love him and and do all of the things that create a legend when he really hadn't changed as a person uh it's a difficult question, and it relates to the way we drape sports and nostalgia and the way everyone's always uh, more cuddly at 50 than they were at 25. But do you think in 20 years we'll be talking about Kyrie Irving this way? Um, I don't think so necessarily. We might because it all depends on who's doing the writing. Exactly. Who's doing the storytelling. Who's doing the storytelling. And, and, and that will have an enormous effect. The, the thing that you have to have in order for all of us to meet in the middle and, and put down our swords is you have to have some form of reconciliation. And Ricky got that. His second half of his career, he became that Satchel Paige, Yogi Berra, mm. character, folklore guy that people wanted to tell stories, that people got nostalgic about. Kyrie Irving is going to have to do a lot of work right now publicly for people to feel nostalgic toward him. Mm -hmm. True, true enough. And I, I think the um, it's one thing to be a character. It's one thing to be an iconoclast. It's another thing to not take a, vac a vaccine because uh, for whatever reason and putting well, other it, people at risk. I mean, I just think that'll that'll be looked at differently. People will always see him differently because. Because there's also one thing that no matter what people want, and they've tried to do it with Barry Bonds, you know, they've tried to do it with some of these other figures, and there is still somewhere along the lines where you have to find some avenue of likability. Right. You, you, it's just imperative. It's essential. You, you know, for that nostalgia, even if you've got someone like Bonds you know, how do you turn Bonds into nostalgia? Well, because he was so damn good. He was above and beyond everybody. And people began to recognize that there was a lot of unfair treatment toward him, no matter how surly and unfriendly he was. It was very, very obvious that he was also a target. And so that creates some sympathy. But I don't see any of those lanes for Kyrie at the moment. It will all, it all shift. We'll see how the story ends. But as of today... Uh, there is a long way to go in the Kyrie Irving story for it to end the way some of these other stories do that, that come full circle. Mm, which is one of the meta reasons why we keep coming back to sports. Because... And they matter so much. I mean, yeah. 
like it or not, these figures are enormous presences for you know, 10, 12, 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about it the other day when I was watching Wimbledon, and it's 2022, and Serena Williams turned pro in 1995. She turned pro 27 years ago. That's, That's half, of my, half of my life, and she's still active. That's wild. And so these figures really do matter because they have such, they take up such an enormous presence. They're so in your face. It's not like, you know, you're thinking about the, the running back who had a couple of thousand yard seasons and you never saw him again. Those guys get replaced. Even Gail Sayers, people don't talk about Gail Sayers nearly as much as they used to, but think about how good you had to be to remain relevant in the public eye. You gotta be around for a while. Mm -hmm. Imagine if in 1995, someone had said to you, hey, that Venus Williams, her little sister is going to be relevant longer than that golfer kid from Stanford, Tiger Woods. Well, and her sister, who's a year older, is still going to be playing Wimbledon with her. Exactly. They both, they both played this year. Venus played in the doubles and Serena played in the singles. So you think about golf as a sport as being friendlier as you get older. And tennis, you know, we know tennis eats its young. So it really is a remarkable story. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's so difficult to to get your head around. Mm. And and I think that the, these are the things that you know, I, I was trying to talk, when I talked to Ricky about this, when I was trying to convince him to cooperate a tiny bit on the book, and I said to him, you know, Ricky, the stories that we remember are not always the most important stories. The, the stories we remember are the ones that get repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated. And it's important, no matter how great you are, everybody gets forgotten to some degree. And what I was trying to convey to him was, you know, I said that even, even someone like you, you last swung a bat in 2003. So therefore, for someone to have seen you in your prime, they're pushing 50. Mm. Wow. Which is a sobering thought. Yeah, it certainly is. It's true. You were born in 1978. How old are you right now? You're 45 years old. Mm -hmm. Wow. Amazing. Um, Howard, you've been really generous with your time. Before you go, I got to ask you, you know, every book has a soundtrack, has music, I think, that the writer listens to either to wind down afterwards or while they're doing the writing itself. What, what was your music for Ricky? That's a, that's a great question. Um, it, it really is. What I tried to do in thinking about sort of who he was, he was really an early James Brown guy. Hmm. And sort of the music he really liked. Ricky was never like a hip hop guy. He was really R&B soul. So I listen to a lot of Curtis Mayfield. Wow, that's that works. <laughs> a lot of Curtis, but I because I was because you know trying to get into, in trying to get into the right place and frame of mind, that was one. But what's funny is that is that that era of music doesn't connect me to Ricky. It connected Ricky to Ricky. What connected mm. me to Ricky was way later. Was the late '80s, early '90s when he came back to Oakland. That's when I really remember you know, Ricky at Supernova, but I tried to stay in, in, in the time period that he really sort of, um, was most attracted to. Mm, so no too short. <laughs> <laughs> Kept it with, uh, with, with, with the well, funk. Well, you know, was his boy though. I mean, he was, he was super, 
great friends, you know, best friends. Fred Atkins is his best friend, but he was, you know, Louis Burrell, which is Stanley's yeah. brother, or Stanley MC Hammer. They were all tight together, hanging out in the Oakland clubhouse in the early 70s. Yeah, you see, that's right. And uh, you know who Hammer's lawyer was? Do I know who Hammer's lawyer was? Yeah, as he was coming in Oakland and dealing with all kinds of things, people trying to get his money, him, of course, giving a lot of it away. You mean in the 90s? Yeah. I don't. Billy Hunter. I was going to say, it's Billy Hunter, right? I yes. Mean, fun, but yeah. I mean, he's in the book. Yeah. That's right. No, that's what, maybe, that's what it pop, popped it in my head. The great Billy, Billy Hunter. Hunter. No doubt. <laughs> but, you know, H Howard, I know you're in Atlanta right now for work. Good luck with what you're doing. I can't wait for you to uncork it on the world. I don't think, I don't know if you can say anything about it, but. Can't. But working hard on stuff that I hope people like. Yes. And when people see stuff that Howard does that you like, remember, you got a little tickle of it right here on the Edge of Sports podcast. But Howard, thanks so much, man. Thank you, Dave. Uh, we'll be back right after this short message from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look, on July 4th, as a raucous parade past my house with someone singing old time rock and roll on a makeshift float. It was difficult to not think about what Brittany Griner is enduring while my friends and neighbors drank gustily to their own freedom. The WNBA all-star who has been in a Russian prison since February gave us a degree of insight into how she was feeling. In a handwritten letter delivered to President Joe Biden, delivered on Independence Day, Griner wrote, as I sit here in a Russian prison alone with my thoughts and without the protection of my wife, family, friends, Olympic jersey, or any accomplishments, I'm terrified I might be here forever. Greiner is, of course, on trial in Russia in a court system where 99% of all prosecutions lead to conviction and having to reckon with the prospect of 10 years in prison, five of which could be spent at hard labor for the crime of two THC vape cartridges allegedly found in her luggage at a Moscow airport back in February. For the Russian prosecution, this constitutes drug smuggling. And it doesn't take a Brookings Institute political scientist to figure out what has happened. Whether guilty or not, there is plenty of reason for doubt. Authorities arrested Greiner mere days before Russia invaded Ukraine, sending U.S.-Russia relations into a tailspin. She has become a political prisoner, a bargaining chip for Putin to both taunt the United States and hopefully get a high-valued Russian prisoner in return. Yet Russia overestimated how much the U.S. political and sports establishment would work to free Brittany Griner. The sports media has largely turned a blind eye. One could only imagine the ruckus if it was Tom Brady or Steph Curry facing years in a Russian labor camp. And the political establishment has in recent weeks talked a better game, but has nothing to show for it. 
Terry Jackson, executive director of the WNBA Players Association, told NPR that she wants to see more from this government than statements from the State Department that they wake up every day thinking about Griner's plight. Jackson wants, quote, President Biden, our elected official, to have a meeting, a sit-down, a face-to-face with Sherelle Griner, BG's wife, because you know what? She deserves that. She certainly does. While the sports media turns its eye to the soap operatic meanderings of NBA free agency and the State Department offers words without results, Sherelle Griner is living a nightmare. After choosing silence for months regarding her wife's capture on the advice of the State Department, Sherelle has gone public to raise the heat on Biden and friends to ensure that they prioritize securing Brittany Griner's freedom. Appearing on Al Sharpton's Sirius XM show, Sherelle bravely verbalized her pain and relayed what she had learned through their letters. She was due to speak to Brittany by telephone, but the U.S. Embassy, after weeks of negotiation, forgot to staff their phone to make the connection on their third wedding anniversary. Sherelle is also going through all this by preparing to take the bar exam. Sherelle has described a Brittany Griner who is almost constantly cramped, trying to fold her six foot nine inch frame into a cell and onto a bed made for prisoners a fraction of her size. She told Sharpton that Brittany is quote unquote struggling, but also attempting to be strong in order to at least try and manage the weight on Sherelle's shoulders. She said, because I'm her person, she will always try and write persuasively to make sure I don't break because she knows I'm studying for my bar and she knows I have all these things going on and she's trying to always be my strong person. In one letter to Sherelle, Brittany wrote that she is hardened and not on her knee writing, but I'm holding on and I won't break until I come home. The Kremlin denies that Griner is a political prisoner, but this is a don't spit in my face and tell me it's raining kind of response. In advance of the invasion, Russia identified, targeted, and arrested Griner. This in polite circles is known as hostage diplomacy, and it's not the first time Russia is engaged in this practice. It is understandable as we're living in a country with its own advancing authoritarianism, why Brittany Griner might not be on the top of anyone's concerns. But as long as she remains in jail, and as long as our own sports world fails to love her nearly enough, we need to make the space to demand her freedom. In the recent weeks, we've seen rallies aimed at raising her name, and the basketball world, at least, has done more than in the early months of her capture. But we need more. We need an international outcry. In her letter to Biden, Greiner wrote, I still have so much good to do with my freedom that you can help restore. I miss my wife. I miss my family. I miss my teammates. It kills me to know they are suffering so much right now. I'm grateful for whatever you can do at this moment to get me home. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award. Stand up! 
goes to somebody who's gotten it so many times, I might as well call it the Megan Rapino Award for just standing up. Megan Rapino was a welcome and rare voice of uh, cisgender woman speaking out in favor of trans inclusion in women's sports. And this is what she said. She said, I'm 100% supportive of trans inclusion. People who do not know very much about it. We're missing almost everything. Frankly, I think what a lot of people know is versions of the right-wing talking points because they're very loud, they're very consistent, and they're relentless. At the highest level, there is regulation. In college sports, there is regulation. And at the Olympic and professional level, it's not like it's a free-for-all where everyone's just doing whatever. I think people also need to understand that sports is not the most important thing in life. Life is the most important thing in life. And so much of this trans inclusion argument has been put through the extremely tiny lens of elite sports. Like that is not the way we need to be framing this question. We're talking about kids. We're talking about people's lives. We're talking about the entire state government coming down on one child in some states. They're committing suicide because they're being told they're gross and different and evil and sinful and they can't play sports with their friends that they grew up with. Not to mention trying to take away healthcare. I think it's monstrous. I would also encourage everyone out there who is afraid someone's going to have an unfair advantage over their kid to really take a step back and think what we are actually talking about here. We're talking about people's lives. I'm sorry, your kid's high school volleyball team just isn't that important. It's not more important than any one kid's life. Show me the evidence that trans women are taking everyone's scholarships, are dominating in every sport, are winning every title. I'm sorry, it's just not happening. So we need to start from inclusion, period. And as things arise, I have confidence that we can figure it out, but we can't start at the opposite. That's cruel, and frankly, it's just disgusting. So we really need to take kind of a step back and get a grip on what we're really talking about here, because people's lives are at risk. Kids' lives are at risk with the rates of suicide, the rates of depression and negative mental health and drug abuse. We're putting everything through, God forbid, a trans person being successful in sports. Get a grip on reality and take a step back. Thank you, Megan Rapino. And you know what? I'm not even gonna do a just sit your ass down award because I just want that to, to sort of hang there and think about it. Maybe rewind 30 seconds. A message to the critics, you'll get it when we rewind. It's three strikes, two tokes, one time for your mind. That's a little organized confusion. Listen to Megan Rapino again. And with that, I just want to say thanks to everybody for listening to the show. Thanks, Howard Bryant. Thanks to David Tigabu, the producer of this podcast. Thank you to The Nation Magazine. For everybody out there listening, please stay safe. Please mask up. Please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. <laughs>